Let's pray together. Father, as we turn into your word, we again acknowledge that so much is changing in our world around us. So many trends, so many transitions. People are coming and going. But Lord, we thank you that you are the same forever. Thank you that your word is eternal. It too will endure through all generations. It was true for those who penned it. It is true for us, Lord, even as we look at it today. We pray that you, the same God who inspired these words, will be the God who today applies them and helps us to understand who you are more clearly through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like it or not, change is a part of your future. I'm becoming more resistant to that the older that I get. I'm a stubborn guy, and when it comes to change, I don't like to embrace it very easily. Matter of fact, I've wasted a lot of time this year in pruning my roses. Some of you know that I grow roses, and I uh, love to do that. I used to love it. I don't like it much anymore. The reason why is because the place where I have uh, put all these roses and planted them in this bed across over here the field uh, is that I never envisioned 18 years later that the maple trees would continue to grow up and out over that particular plot, and guess what? They hardly get any sunshine, direct sunshine, during the day anymore, and they're wimpy, they look awful, don't go look at them, they're uh, ashamed to even have planted them, and I wasted time pruning them, thinking, well, maybe this year they'll, they'll, they'll do a little better. And the fact is, I gotta face change, I gotta move them, I gotta put them into the sunshine if they're gonna have any chance of growing. We live in a world where there's change all around us. Technology is amazing in the amount of changes it throws at us. Uh, Just the other day, I'm realizing, uh, uh, you know, things like maps, people who print maps, they're not printing maps like they used to. Nobody purchases many maps anymore. Uh, How many of you used a typewriter recently? How many of you even know what a typewriter is? All All my papers I did in college were on typewriters, and I almost lost my sanctification typing a number of them. Because every time you made a mistake, you had to stop everything. Oh, never mind. You don't even want to hear about it. Pay phones. Who uses a pay phone anymore? It's just become part of the change of what happens. Now, change can bring about some improvements in life. It's certainly convenient to have a cell phone. But have you ever watched what happens in the dynamics among people because of technology in their hands when they go to a restaurant? you ever watched a family in a restaurant? They all have their own little technology in their hands. Nobody is talking to anybody. They're all engaged in what's going on, a little screen in their hand. It's a shame. And that's what's happening in terms of changes in technology. Of course, there's changes in relationships. Changes can oftentimes be painful in relationships. It is tragic when we hear of people who have entered into the covenant of marriage, either a husband or wife. They've pledged their devotion to the lifelong covenant of marriage, and they later admit, you know, hey, I've changed. I'm no longer willing to work through the challenges of forgiveness and self-denial. And so I'm just going to pursue my own commitments and I'm going to ignore my previous commitments. Those changes are indeed painful. And then there's the changing weather. Of course, we're all praying it'll change, right? Uh, Then there's our physical condition that seems to always change, whether we're still in the spurt of growing or whether we're uh, trying to figure out the changes of why we feel more aches and pains or whatever it is. My question is, what about the spiritual dimension of life? 
Are we to also expect a lot of change in that regard as well? Does God change over time? Seems like everything else is changing around us. And so as we read about the Scriptures, are we dealing with the same God who was active and who took part in amazing acts of of, uh, power and deliverance? Are we dealing with the same God of that, what we read about in Scriptures, as is today? Well, these are the questions I want us to think about this morning as we continue in our third of a series now, looking at the attributes of the true and living God. And this morning we're going to consider the truth, as you've probably picked up in our theme of our service so far, God never changes. And another way of saying that is to use a a word, a fancy word, yes, I know, but it is a helpful word, it's a good word, it's the word immutable, immutable, I-M-M-U-T-A-B-L-E, immutable, comes from Latin, it means im, not, mutabilis means what, changing, so not changing. So I want to look at this concept about God as, as one of his attributes, and I want us to first of all consider the biblical confirmation. God is immutable. God must be defined on the basis of biblical revelation and not on the basis of human reason and our human experience. It's important to understand that. So therefore, what I say to you this morning, I challenge you, you better check it out in the scriptures and not just go by what I say. What we understand God to be like must come from the scriptures. And we must form our thoughts about God accurately based on God's self-revelation in the Word of God. With that in mind, let's turn in your Bibles to page 726 in your pew Bible, Psalm 102. Psalm 102. This psalm was written by a person in crisis. A person whose life was going through a a trial, an intense form of difficulty, and they were crying out to God. Much of the psalm is, is an appeal to God to listen, to come to their aid, to give them help. And then the psalmist seems to come around a corner at the latter part of the psalm, and he, he takes uh, consolation in the fact that the person he's asking to help him is the person he knows he can rely on ultimately. And that's why he's crying out. That's why he's seeking God. So look at verse 24 of Psalm 102. I say, O my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. That is, he's eternal. Of old you did found the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. So he's mighty and powerful. Even they... Oh, sorry. Of old you did found the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they, the heavens and the earth, will perish. But you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. Again, it's written from the context of someone suffering. Someone trying to make sense of how bad things are and that they continue to be bad. And he's trying to say, well, does that mean, God, you've sort of changed and you've walked away from me here? That you're not a God who will hear my prayers any longer? He's trying to deal with 
how to interpret his situation. And the psalmist testified to the fact that God can be counted on to remain the same in the midst of worsening and changing, even to uh, uh, worsening changed uh, situations that have gone from bad to worse. It's good to know that God is the same when things around us are changing from bad to worse. Now let's look at another text of Scripture where, again, this is confirmed and affirmed in Scripture. And this is Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's on page 1136 in your pew Bible. Malachi chapter 3 contains an important affirmation about God spoken by God himself. So this is God now speaking to his people, and he is engaged in a very interesting dialogue with his people in which he is counseling them. Yes, this is a passage of Scripture which God sits his people down and says, okay, I've got a couple things we need to talk about, and I'm going to ask you a couple questions because I'm concerned with what I'm noticing going on in your life. It's a fascinating text, fascinating book, uh, one I would commend to your reading uh, in the future. So here is God, and he's responding to a couple of complaints that the people of God have either muttered under their breath or they've come right out and just said it. And we're going to begin verse 2, chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. And this is the complaint. God delights in those who do evil. Whoa, whoa. that's a pretty bold statement. The people of God are saying, you know, God must delight and celebrate when people do evil. Now, clearly the Israelites have been questioning in their hearts where are you, God? You're the God of justice. Why is all this evil going on around us? And you seem to do nothing about it. So God's response goes like this, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. God's response, he basically says this, I'm going to send my messenger, and he is going to act like a refiner's fire. He is going to purify his own people. So God says, I'm going to purify you, my own people. I'm going to start and show you, no, I'm not one content with people just doing evil. And it starts right here among my own people. And he says, I'm going to judge those who are involved in occultic practices, immoral practices, those who oppress and take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. I'm going to hold them accountable. Then look at verse 6. Then God reminds them that he is going to definitely do these things because his character remains the same. Verse 6, for I, Yahweh, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. What he's saying there is, he's saying, I am not changed in terms of my character. I still will hold people accountable for doing wrong, but I'm also a God who's willing to forgive. And therefore, that's why you still are around, because I'm keeping my covenant promises I made with Abraham, and I'm carrying them forward even to you folks who are, have apparently uh, failed in many areas to walk before me as you were supposed to. So God himself embraces and confirms the fact that he will not change. The psalmist confirmed it in the midst of things that went from bad to worse. Let's take one more passage, the one we read earlier in James chapter 1. So find yourself in James 1 in the New Testament, uh, page, we read it earlier, 1434 in the Pew Bible. Now, this text is interesting because this particular passage of Scripture 
James is dealing with a false assumption. That there are some of us who falsely assume that when we go through very difficult circumstances, uh, when your car is not operating, when the kids are misbehaving, when the, uh, you know, your dinner burns on the stove or whatever, you've lost your job. And so we respond to those events oftentimes in a way that doesn't help things. <laughs> Bad things happen, and then we tend to respond oftentimes by making it get worse, right? So that sometimes we'll res- respond by cussing somebody out, giving them a piece of our mind, or we might withdraw from people that we feel as though I'm fed up with you. Or we may find ourselves retaliating to somebody with whom we have a lot of uh, frustration and anger toward, become impatient about people around us. Whatever it is, we respond in our own way. And in responding in a bad way, so we've had tough circumstances added with bad way of responding, leads to what? People might sometimes say, well, look what the mess you've put me in here, God. So they've lumped God into all of the things that they just responded in a bad way. And so they've just brought God into all big mess and said, it's all your fault, God. Look at this mess. I don't know if you can identify with that, but let me tell you, it's a problem we all face at some point. Now look what James says here. He's going to try to untangle that knot. That's not a good place to, to rest in terms of our belief system. And James challenges this self-deceived thinking. Look at verse 13. James says that God never tempts anybody to sin. So when you respond to a situation out of the own desires of your heart, that's you responding. Don't lump God in with that. And then verse 17, he says, look, remember what God's like here. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from whom? From the Father of lights. Now that, I think, is is a reference to the God who made the heavens. The God who made the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he says, God is the God who brings such good gifts to us. He's the God who created all these things. They're designed to make us think about the greatness of our God. And the the thing is, he says, but remember, with these heavenly bodies, there is lots of change going on. There's lots of variation. There is the strong daylight and the brilliant light of the sun. And then there's the pitch black darkness of night. There are times in which we notice that the days are long and the days are short. When the weather changes and all those kind of things, there's lots of variation. There are shadows that move and shift as the sun makes its way across, as what appears to be the sun making its way across the sky from our perspective. But listen, God's not like that. The creator of the heavens and the earth is not a God who changes like those variations you see and observe in the atmosphere. They have different phases. They have different things that they go through. But God remains the same. His being is unchanging. God does not prompt you to do what is wrong. But God is good, and he remains that way forever, throughout all eternity. You can bank on it. And this is why Moses, when he was writing about God to the children of Israel who were getting ready to now leave the wandering in the wilderness to go into the promised land, he reminds them in Psalm, sorry, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He says, God, you're a rock. Now, if my wife were to call me a rock, I might think to myself, is she thinking that I'm hard-headed and I don't respond very well? That my German background tends to be rather uh, cerebral and I'm just withdrawn? A rock used by Moses with regard to God 
is one way of Moses saying, God, you are unchanging like a rock. I think of the Prudential Insurance Company adopted years and years ago a company symbol of the Rock of Gibraltar. Perhaps you've seen that little logo. The Rock of Gibraltar actually is a massive mountain rock that juts out of the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Spain. It's a huge island rock, and it hasn't changed. It hasn't moved. It hasn't been worn down by the pounding waves and wind. It is a stable, sure, and unchanging part of the world. And so to think of God as a rock is to think of God's being as he is one who is never changing. One theologian summarized God's unchanging nature in this way. He said that God never changes in his purposes, in his perfections, that is the fact of his nature and his characteristics, and his promises remain constant. How different than you and me, right? Those of us who are created beings, creatures, we have a beginning, we have an end, and we also are constantly growing, we're constantly changing. That's just part of what it means to be alive. Paul Washer noted how God is so different. He says this, God does not grow, evolve, or improve because he is already perfect. God cannot diminish, deteriorate, or regress because he would no longer be God. And whatever God is, he has always been and always will be. He is like a rock. That's a good thing to hang on to, my friends, because let me tell you something. If you believe that and truly understand what God's nature is like, that is going to give you an amazing amount of stability in your life if you truly know and follow and worship the true and living God who is unchanging. Now, let's move us to our second point here. I just wanted to confirm the scriptures clearly teach that. Now, I'm going to look at the second point here. If you find this to be hard to, to tackle... Uh, Welcome to the club, okay? This is a tough one to sort of uh, hang on to and figure out, so I'm going to throw it out there. If it sticks, praise God. Uh, I'm going to consult other people who are far smarter than I am, but there are some concerns on the second point. There are some biblical concerns. What about those texts of Scripture that talk about God changing his mind? Some people have raised these concerns regarding the immutability of God, and they have struggled to harmonize these affirmations they read in the Bible that say, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 15 says, God is not a man that he should change his mind. Okay, well, we read that. But then we read passages like Genesis 6, verse 6, that says that God was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. You say, whoa, wait a minute here. Uh, that seems a little somewhat problematic, doesn't it? How about another example? You got Jonah. Jonah was commanded to do what? Go to, let's say it all together, Nineveh. Thank you. All right, Jonah was to go to Nineveh. And what does he do? He heads the exact opposite direction. He goes towards Spain, which is Tarshish, was in that area. And you know how God had to deal with him. So he finally gets his act together, comes back, and starts proclaiming the message to the enemies of God's people in this massive urban center of Nineveh. And so he proclaims the message and says, 
in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his message. So he's basically telling them, hey, folks, it's coming. So watch out. Now, later we read, though, that God relented concerning this calamity that he declared he would bring upon Nineveh. And not a few people have, along with Jonah, of course, his attitude was really poor, but not a few people also raised a concern that God relented from this disaster he said he was going to do. He somehow changes his mind. So that raises the question, does God change his purposes when he withdraws judgment when he had just said, I'm insisting that it's going to take place? Well, that's a big question. Let me consult with the big heavy hitters. J.I. Packer is a very helpful and clear writer, and he says this. He says, repenting means revising one's judgment, changing one's plan of action. And God never really does that. He never needs to because his plans are made on the basis of his complete knowledge and control, which extends to all things, past, present, and future. So there's no sudden emergencies or any kind of unlooked-for developments that cause catch God by surprise. God's not caught off guard by things that somehow come around the corner he wasn't expecting them. Psalm 33 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. So what God does in time, he planned from eternity. And all that he planned in eternity, he carries out in time. All that he has in his word, he committed himself to do, and he will infallibly, these things will infallibly be done. And thus we read in Hebrews 6 that there's an unchangeable character in God that indicates that he is going to bring believers into full enjoyment of the things that he's promised to them in the covenant, new covenant of grace. Those things you can count on. Why? Because God doesn't change. He's announced his intentions, they do not change, and no part of his eternal plan changes. Now, what about these texts, though, that seem to describe this difficulty of God repenting? Well, Packer goes on to say that each case indicates that there is a reversal in God's previous treatment of particular people. That he's already said something to a particular person, that person now changes and says or does something different, and in consequence of that, he reacts to them appropriately in light of that. There is no suggestion that this reaction was unforeseen or that it took God by surprise. It was not provided for in his eternal plan. God was, knew exactly that if someone does repent, he's prepared at that moment to forgive them. He's prepared at that moment to act consistent with his nature. That is, I will re- show mercy to those who repent and turn from their sin. And so... In many ways, you could say that changes, this this word repent means, God repents, it means he changes his dealings with men according to his sovereign purposes. Now, if you're scratching your head and you say, I don't know, that's tough to handle. I'll grant you, that's a difficult concept to hang on to in terms of, a lot of it has to do with the interpretation of the Hebrew word, and it means one thing in one context, it's translated to be another thing in another context, But I assure you, God doesn't change. God does not change. If people respond differently, it's not wrong to say God has changed in the sense that he has responded differently, but he himself has not changed. You with me? I hope you'll say halfway yes. All right. 
I want to move then to my third point here. I had to at least touch on that. Uh, I want to look thirdly, though, at the comfort we receive, the biblical comfort of the fact that God is the same now and forever. There is indeed much comfort in relating to a God who is unchanging, in relying upon an immutable God. There is great comfort for us in this truth. Imagine how exasperating it would be if God, for the present time, was characterized by fairness, by justice, mercy, truth, holiness, and love. But in the not-too-distant future, let's say maybe three weeks, three months from now, three years from now, God takes an entirely different approach in dealing with us. And at that point, he would say, you know, I think it's okay to do all the things that used to be prohibited by me. And if somehow he begins to say, you know, I really don't care to tell you the truth anymore about what's real in life because I really don't care about you anymore. I mean, what if God all of a sudden became like that? The thought of God undergoing a midlife crisis or a midlife realignment, it's terrifying. And some people, unfortunately, grew up with a parent who, when they were sober, they acted in ways that were commendable, ways that were reliable, ways in which they knew that was right was right and wrong was wrong. But unfortunately, they related to that same parent who, when intoxicated, that parent did and said things that they told their children never to do or say. See, God is never like that. He is consistent. And His nature remains the same in the past, in the present, in the future, throughout eternity. And therefore, God is worthy of our trust. That's what I'm trying to lead us toward here. He is worthy of our trust. The author Arthur Pink commented on what great comfort this can be. I believe this is in your notes. Follow along as we read this. This is very well written. Human nature cannot be relied upon, but God can. I want you to read that with me. That's a great line. First line. Human nature cannot be relied upon, but God can. That's a good word, brothers, sisters. However unstable I may be, however fickle my friends, and I would put in parentheses, however fickle my family members may be, God changes not. If He varied as we do, if He willed one thing today and another tomorrow, if He were controlled by caprice, who could confide in Him? But all praise to His glorious name, He is ever the same. He is the same. His purpose is fixed. His will is stable. His word is sure. Here then is a rock on which we may fix our feet while the mighty torrent is sweeping away everything around us. The permanence of God's character guarantees the fulfillment of all His promises. Do I get an amen? I mean, I can't get any better wording than that. That's, that's preachable. So I just thought, well, I'll just read what he wrote. It's true. The question is, do you believe it? Do we believe it about God? The tendency for us, and I'm guilty of this, is that after human experience of a person after person after person after person lets us down, 
changes their word, goes back on their promise. After a while, we're like, I can't trust anybody. My friend, you can and you ought to trust God Almighty. He is the immutable God who never changes. Because of God's immutable nature, it therefore makes perfect sense to pray. Because God has said, you need to humble yourself, seek my face. Keep knocking, keep seeking, and you'll find it, he says. So prayer is an important, a proper thing to do. Even though you think the world is changing and things have turned upside down and your life is nowhere any close to being resembling what it used to be, God is the same. The rock is still there. Turning to him in prayer is the appropriate thing to do. And I'm convinced that in the writer of Hebrews, if you think about his writing to the people of that day, they were Hebrew Christians. Jewish people who come to faith in Christ. And in the midst of that, or they had professed faith in Christ, one of those two. And in the midst of all that, they were beginning to suffer for following Jesus as Messiah. People were really starting to give them a lot of grief and difficulty. And so they were starting to have lots of questions, a lot of willingness. I don't know if I want to follow. I'm not going to do all this. And so there were many of them who had said, well, I'll follow Jesus no matter what. But they were going back on that because they were just saying words, didn't really intend to follow him. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to build his case. Jesus never changes. People have criticized Jesus. Well, look at him. He came in such humility and such powerlessness and such, you know, he was put on that cross in shame. What an awful place to be. And now you're claiming somehow he's in glory. And, oh, come on. There's no way anybody could go through that dramatic change. And the writer of Hebrews says, listen, he humbled himself, but that was still the same almighty God in the first person of Christ. And now he is the same. He's on in glory in heaven. And he will never change. He will always be God most glorious. And so the writer of Hebrews says, listen, don't you doubt God's immutable nature. Don't you doubt Jesus's nature. Read Hebrews 1. He says, he basically quotes Psalm 102 again, says that applies to Jesus. He ties what was said of God, Yahweh, he ties it right in there with Jesus Christ. And then what he says in chapter Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday in creation, He's the same today in offering salvation. He is the same forever in reigning in heaven. He cannot be improved upon. He is perfect in power, glory, and holiness. I came across a humorous story, and I wish I had the item with me to help complete this story. I don't have it with me, so bear with me and follow along here. But there's a story about Lloyd Douglas a novelist, and uh, years ago when he was in university, he was living in a boarding house, and he was downstairs on the first floor. Sorry, he was living upstairs, and downstairs on the first floor was an elderly gentleman who was a retired musician. And so this general, uh, elderly gentleman was infirm, and so every day uh, Lloyd would check on him, and he'd come down in the morning, and they had a little ritual they'd go through together, and they would sort of make sure that things are still okay. And he'd come down, he'd say to the old man, Well, what's the good news? And the old man would pipe up, and he would pick up his tuning fork. I guess you know what that is. It's like a U-shaped piece of metal. You you, uh, bang it against something, and the vibration always has the same note, the exact perfect note. It's the perfect pitch of middle C. So he takes that thing, he, he knocks it on the side of his wheelchair, and he says, that's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. He said the tenor upstairs is flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. 
But that, my friend, he said, that is a middle C. Seems like a silly thing to say in the morning, but that's what they would say every morning when he would greet each other. But what's the point there? The point is the old man discovered that everything seems to constantly change around us. He said there are some things that do not change, that one thing. And for us, my friends, that one is Jesus Christ. He is the same. He is always the same. He was yesterday. He is today. He will be forever. In a changing world, he is the same. So then look at our notes there. You'll notice I have, I think, a quote by Wayne Grudem. He says, if God is not unchanging, then the whole basis of our faith begins to fall apart. And our understanding of the universe begins to unravel. This is because our faith and hope and knowledge all ultimately depend on a person who is infinitely worthy of trust because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. And so I say again, do you know God? Is the God that you pray to, is the God that you rely upon, is the God who gives you promises to claim, is he a God who's one way today and something else tomorrow? Or is he forever the same? Do you know the comfort it is to know and trust God who is like a rock? And Jesus Christ who will ever live to make intercession for you because he forever remains the same? Now, there's one other point I want to make here, and that is there are some in this world who are counting on Jesus changing. They assume that Jesus must be sort of like us. And so I would be remiss if I did not include a word of warning to those who go their own way, refuse to repent. They continue on in their rebellious ways against God, and they suppose in their minds that Jesus will not follow through with his predictions of judgment upon the wicked. And some people assume that Jesus will not execute eternal punishment upon those who refuse to bend their knee, refuse to confess Jesus as Lord. But my friends, do not be deceived. Jesus will not deny himself. He will not act inconsistent with his holy nature. And while he does extend mercy and grace to everyone who repents in this life, praise God, He will say to those who never exhibited and refused to exhibit any kind of fruit of repentance, any kind of humility before God, any kind of turning away from their sin and turning to faith in Christ, there will come a day in the day of judgment in which he will say, depart from me, accursed ones, in the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Because Jesus remains the same. Although he is gracious now, one day he will bring about a day of judgment. Let's flee to him now while we can. Let's pray. O God, you who are like a rock, we acknowledge that you are completely different than us in the sense that you are not affected by change, your person, your promises, your perfections. Lord, we thank you that your purposes never change. We ask today for forgiveness for many of us, Lord, who have drawn the wrong conclusions about you. 
Oftentimes, Lord, our, our way of relating to you is to assume that you have changed or that things are going to change about you, Lord. We pray that you'd help us to truly know you as you really are, not as we imagine you to be. Lord, build in us a faith that is grounded and built upon the sure and steadfast oath and promises you have made based on your unchanging character. And forgive us, Lord, for being pushed to and fro by our emotions and by our feelings and by our circumstances and, and by our shifting thoughts about you. Help us, Lord, to be firm and steadfast, built squarely upon you, Lord, and your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to see, Lord, that you do act consistent with your nature and that your purposes will prevail, that your plans for your people will not be thrown asunder. But we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is gracious to those who do repent. Lord, how we thank you that you do extend mercy. May there be, even today, Lord, those who turn to you even this day, turning to Christ, so that they may find in him eternal life and that they might find new life and a changed heart and a new beginning. Father, we thank you that as we approach this new week, as we approach the first day of the rest of our lives upon this earth, we thank you that you did not change. Help us, therefore, to trust you and to seek your face and to celebrate your steadfast ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.